0: Today we're going to begin a series for the month of December, we're say, calling The God Who Speaks. And I, I want to help us in this to see the beauty and the fullness uh, of, of what we call Christmas, of, of this baby in a manger, of, of Jesus, and, and what God was communicating. How, how did we get even to the place where, where Jesus would need to come in the flesh, so, so often, we just jump into the narrative of, of, here's this baby in a manger, but why? Why a baby in a manger? Why, why did Jesus, the fully God, take on flesh, as we'll see on Christmas Eve, humiliate himself by taking on flesh, and not just any flesh, but to die? Why? What, what does that communicate to us? God is, God is speaking. God is telling us something. He's communicating not only about Himself, but He's communicating to us about ourselves, in through this baby in a manger. And hopefully, I, I want all things as always. I want us to lead us to Christ. I want to lead us to worship fully this Christ, the the true understand the true gift of Christmas. That that not stopping with the baby in a manger, but again carrying it to its fullness. And completion to a cross, but three days later to a resurrected savior and so today I want to look at the law I want to start at the beginning of the story I want us to I want us over the course of this month to to walk through the biblical narrative, if you will, and help us understand how we ended up in Bethlehem why the, again, why this baby in a manger and and, and what did God where did this story begin and specifically with the law what was God communicating through the law and how that again connects to Christ my fear is that we don't understand how that connects to this baby in a manger to the Christmas story and ultimately the cross and beyond the cross and so what what did God communicate what was he communicating to us through the law and how does this relate to Christ and so With that, you'll see on your handout the main point today in our series we're calling The God Who Speaks. The main point, the law communicates. The law is communicating something to us, and what it communicates is that it's God's authority over creation. It communicates that His character is holy, that our nature is sinful, and that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And I want to try to break this down today for us to understand it hopefully in in digestible bites, that we will understand the role of the law then and even the role of the law today. What what was God communicating, and how does that lead us to hopefully cherish Christ more? In this series, I want us to cherish Christ more, fully understanding why why did we need a substitute? Why did we need a redeemer, a savior, why, why did Christ, why is no man justified through works of the law? Why this baby in a manger that would grow up to, to give his life for us? And the issue and reality, the issue really is the reality and the depth of our sin, if you if you seek to communicate with people and use opportunities to communicate the gospel with people, and and there are out there, there are tons of opportunities. There are ways to to take all conversations and lead them to the gospel. When when you when you encounter others and, and individuals and you speak to them, and you talked about you talk to them about their need for a savior. Really, the the main issue becomes they're being blind to to not only their sin, but the depth of their sin. Most people have erroneously believed that God will let them into heaven because they're more or less good people. Most people, when you speak to them, feel like they're more or less good people. They, They can't imagine how a loving God would send them to hell in spite of their goodness, in in spite of their, they would acknowledge a few faults. That's the issue. The the depth of our sinfulness. And and I I want to, again, Jesus didn't come to die for a people that had a few faults. He took on flesh, God, God, he was birthed in a manger in Bethlehem because God's creation was utterly sinful. That's what Romans 3 makes clear. And if we're going to worship, if we're going to appreciate this, this Savior, this baby in a manger, we've got to first acknowledge the depth of our own sinfulness. If we're going to really appreciate Christmas, you know, I, I was thinking about it, and this is a silly illustration, but my my, my mom was asking me, my, my dad had a knee replacement surgery on Monday, and so Sunday afternoon I drove up to be with, with him and my mom and, and spent the night with them and, and stayed with my mom through the surgery and was there just to hopefully ease some of her anxieties. And uh, my dad has some heart conditions that that can make, surgery a little treacherous and so my mom was a little anxious about that and she was we were talking and she was like Chris what do you want for Christmas I said mom seriously I I don't need anything like I really like Karen and I have been talking and and it's like a major deal to try to come up with something that we really really need and and so she was getting upset because I wouldn't tell her something and then about 11 30 that night I pop up out of bed and I was like mom you awake she's yeah I'm awake I said, "Mom, I want a, I want a, I want a backpack blower." She's like, "What?" She's like, "No, I, I, need a blower. Like my blower is garbage." You know, my point is, and my point in saying that is, I was like, "I, I don't really have any needs." And I think if you talk to, a, and, and because because I don't really have any needs, listen. A lot of us are going to work real hard this Christmas just to come up with a gift to give to somebody so that we can say we gave them a gift and it's not really going to satisfy a need. And my fear is is that sometimes we approach the gospel that way. That's good and all. But did it satisfy a deep need? Is it just something extra that we can tack on to our lives? Or does it satisfy a deep, deep need that without it, we die? That that without it, we die separated from a holy God. Is the gospel just one more shirt that we can put in our closet? Is that the kind of gift, is it? Or is it a desperate need that without it, we die? And, and if we don't appreciate that, if we don't understand that, we're going to brush right over Christmas. And we're gonna, It's going to be like when you open up those gifts and you're like, oh, that's nice. That's nice. It's a nice shirt. It's a nice this. It's a nice that. And you just move on to the next one. Versus it settle, settling or satisfying a deep, deep need that you had to have. And God begins to communicate this need for a Savior at the very beginning of the Bible. And the way He makes it really, really clear is through the giving of the law. And you'll see it on, your, on as your first Fill in there. The first point: the law of God is good. God is communicating to us through the law, and this is what He's. And again, He's communicating a need. He's also communicating Himself. the law of God is good in that it is sourced in God. Listen, the law was sourced in God, and it reflects His complete holiness and His desire for His people and their lives to reflect Him accurately. If I asked you today, what is the law, what was the purpose of the law, I bet you would have, if you could answer that, there would be the answers would be many. And I want us to give us a, I want us to understand a clear purpose of the law, that even in Jesus' day, even in our day, many saw the law as bad, as evil. And so I want to clear that up but mainly so that we will understand Christ better and appreciate Christ better. Again, the law, first and foremost, the law was more than just a bunch of rules. The law really was a story. The law really was a story of redemption, a story of of salvation, a story of how God was creating a new people who would love Him with all their hearts, with all their minds, would would love others as themselves. You've got to grasp that in the big picture. God was... Again, he was creating a people for his own pleasure in the giving of the law. It, it, was, it was given in what we would call the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is a fancy seminary name for the first five books of the of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Genesis, we see God creating humanity. And, and what does he say in Genesis 1? He created them to be representatives. He created them to be image bearers of himself. And, and unfortunately, we see that new creation rebel. Choose, they choose That new creation, Adam, Eve, they choose to rebel. They choose to, to live according to their own wisdom and not submit to the wisdom of God. They choose to go their own way and not submit themselves to the way of God. And that's called Sin. And we see the fact that sin separates us from the holiness of our God because immediately what happened? God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He killed an animal. He clothed them with that. But he did what? He threw them out of the garden. Why? Because a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. God's people had rebelled. His creation had rebelled. They no longer would accurately, in and of themselves, would accurately reflect the holiness and the greatness of their creator and God. Why? Because they had been marred by sin. And so what happens is God then chooses to resolve this issue. He chooses Abraham. And he says, listen, out of you, Abraham, I will create a people for my own possession. I will create a people and I will nurture a people and through them, Through them, the entire world will be blessed. The whole foundation of the Bible is built really there on Genesis 12. If you want to turn to me, you can. It may come up on the screens, but I'll read it. Genesis 12, what's called the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will, here it is, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 15 we see this covenant ratified, it's reiterated. God chooses Abraham to form a people. Through Abraham and his offspring, through his children, God would bring blessings to the entire world. And God does that. And again, the family grows. The family becomes a huge people. And yet, what you see consistently is that they sin and fall short. Abraham sins and falls short. Abraham's children sin and fall short. Abraham's children's children sin and fall short. And it repeats it. Over and over, and in God's sovereignty, they end up, and because of penalty of their sin, they end up in slavery in Egypt. And under Egypt's care, you see a nation flourish and grow in number. And this is the book of Exodus. God really, in spite of their sin, again, God's sovereignty they were there, because, again, because of their sin, and yet God was sovereignly using Egypt, Egypt's care to uh, protect His people and to allow His people to grow in number to the point where Pharaoh feared the Israelites. God's people feared them because of their num- great numbers, feared them that they would rebel and, and usurp His authority. And so He made life really, really hard and difficult for them. And yet God sovereignly was using that to to motivate his people to leave Egypt's care. Because it was comfortable in Egypt. It was nice in Egypt. Although the work was hard, they were fed, they were looked after, sin can be like that sometimes. Deceptive. And so so Pharaoh makes life miserable for them and it motivates in them a heart that wants to get out of there. And what does God do? God rescues them. God parts the Red Sea, and by faith, Israel would run through the Red Sea. By faith, again, in faith, that God would keep those waters parted while they ran through. And that as soon as they got through, what did God do? He closed the waters, protecting his people. But what did God do? God rescued his people. He saved his people. At Mount, and then at Mount Sinai is where he begins to reveal to his people, communicate to his people the law, what, what we know as the law. At Mount Sinai, God formed a covenant with his people. And it's important to know, listen, the law, the law always existed. We think of it beginning there, it was simply revealed there. The law had always existed. Why? Because the character of God has always and always will be holy. God didn't begin being holy at Mount Sinai, His character didn't begin at Mount Sinai. His character was simply communicated to His people at Mount Sinai. It's important to note, many of us think that this was just, oh, well, that's where it started. No, 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 God's character has forever and forever will be holy. And the law was simply a reflection. He was telling his people, if you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God and you're going to represent me before all the nations, this is how you're going to have to do it. This is, how, this, is, this, is how, this is how you will represent me before a watching world. This is how you will represent the holiness of Uh, that I am. But the law and the law clearly communicated this before the people of God to whom it was given. This was a treaty, it was a covenant. God was the greater party, Israel was the lesser party. And in ancient days, that's how kings and others would relate to one another, through treaties, through covenants. The greater party would dictate to the lesser party, this is how this is going to be. And in this case, a holy God and sinful humanity. There will be stipulations for obedience. There will be stipulations for disobedience. Exactly what we see in the law. But importantly, again, God is the sovereign here. This is not between two equal parties. This is between a greater party and a lesser party. These are not equals. And it's important for us to understand, this giving of the law was a gracious act on behalf of God. He was communicating to his people about his nature. God was gracious. So many of us fail to see this. God was gracious in giving the law. Look look with me at Exodus 19. It, It may come up on your screens if you have a Bible. Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. Make this clear. Now then, this this is what he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Okay, God is forging a covenant with them. And in in Exodus 20, we see the beginning nature of that covenant in what we would call the Ten Commandments. And when we think about the law, typically that's what we think about is Ten Commandments. But the law went way beyond the Ten Commandments. There was actually 613 commands in the Mosaic Law, and it went even beyond that if you wanted to be, I mean, as it continued. But again, and this comprises the first five books, the Pentateuch. Within those 613 Mosaic Laws, there were 365 that were negative, meaning don't do this, don't do this. And there were 248 that were positive, do this, do this. And it covered every single area of Israel's life. Every single area. It was totally comprehensive about how they were to live as God's people. And again, it was more than just about rules. It was a covenant that God was forming with his people. This is how Israel was to live and behave in in before all the other nations, why? To reflect the character of their God. All the other nations were to look at Israel, and, and if they were obedient, they would look and say, how is this little old nation so prosperous? How is this little old nation getting along so well? Here's the answer. Our God. Our God. They were to be set apart. That's the idea of holiness. They the get the, you say, why this law? Why that law? To make Israel distinct from every other nation. So that God's people would look distinct from every other nation. That's the why. You, you, you look at some of these obscure laws, you know, boiling a goat in its mother's milk and not doing that, and why the split-hoofed, and why not this, and why this? Because so many times, pagan nations, if you'll study, pagan nations did that. You know what God is saying? I don't want you to look like them. Down to the smallest detail, I do not want my people to be confused with their people. More important than that, I do not want people to confuse me with those false gods. Do you see how important the law was? This is, about, uh, this is about God's people. Reflecting the character of their God. And again. It defined every single aspect of their life. And I, I give you all of that. So that you'll understand. And have a proper perspective on the law. The, listen. Listen. Israel was already chosen by God as their people. Agreed? The law didn't make them His people. He had already chosen them as His people when they received the law. Listen, they had already been shown grace. They had already received the grace of God in choosing them as His people. He had already redeemed them out of Egyptian slavery. He had already shown favor to them Way before he ever gave the law, rescue and redemption and choosing had happened long before. And that's what you see on your handout there. The law was not a precondition for salvation, nor a way for them to be saved or chosen by God. But obedience to the law was to be their grateful response for having been chosen. It was a response. We, we must see the law rightly. And in many regards, this is how Israel got sideways with regards to the law. Rather than obeying it by faith, they took it as a thing of works, that I can earn my way to God. No, you can't. And we'll see in a minute. That's part of the curse of the law. James 2.10 says, if you break even one commandment, you break the entire law. That's the curse. You, what is that? Oh, sorry. I, ADD kicks in. I'm like, what is that? See, you and I come to the law, and we think, oh, well, I'll be really good at obeying this part. I'll be really good at obeying this part. The problem is this. You can't obey that part, and so guess what? You break the whole law. That's how holy God is. He's perfect. You you ask a crowd of people, do you think you're good? Most people raise their hand. If I said, are you perfect, I guarantee you none of us in here are going to raise our hand. God's character is perfect, holy. God didn't reveal the law and then say, listen, okay, Israel, once you measure up, then I'll choose you. Hey, once you measure up, then I'll be your God. They had already been chosen. They had already been rescued. What was required of them was obedience by faith. Again, overflowing from the gratitude of having been chosen as God's people. They entered the Red Sea by faith. I mean, try if you can for a moment to put yourself on the shores of the Red Sea. The waters part. There's a huge wall of water on both. Even if it was as wide as this, it probably had to have been wider for that many people. But imagine if there was water I mean, it's pouring out there. Imagine if the water was up to the height of the ceiling on both parts, and I said, listen, run as fast as you can for the next three miles. I'll hold the walls of that water up. You going to do it? Faith. Listen, don't get halfway and get tired. You see the faith? Faith. God's people have always been commanded to live by faith. You go to Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. You go to Romans 1.16 and 17. The righteous shall live by faith. God had already rescued them. He had ransomed them. He's simply saying, if you're going to be my people, you're going to have to live by faith. Again, and, and everything was built. Everything was built. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but everything was built upon them being God's people. They had already been chosen as God's people. Look with me if you're, if you're in Exodus. Look with me at Exodus 20, verse 2. When, when he begins to give the Ten Commandments, look what he says. The God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's already redeemed them in that sense. You see it? Everything was built. We saw this a while back. Our worship, our lives are built upon our salvation. The Christian life is built upon God having already redeemed us by grace through faith. It's not a meritorious thing. We obey because we are already His people. Again, God is pointing them back to their deliverance. Obedience of the law was never meant to be a means of salvation, but a response to having been chosen already as God's people, having already received grace. And obedience to the law would be an expression of of the gratitude, would be an expression of love towards God. You see it there, it would be an expression of loyalty to God having chosen them. Obedience was an overflow of gratitude. It was an overflow of awe, of amazement, of having been covenanted with the one true God. That was where the law came in. It was a comprehensive, instructive as to the whole life of God's people, as to how they would reflect the holiness of their God before a watching world. The law, again, it was a reflection of God's character, it was a reflection of His holiness. And it set Israel apart from every other nation. That was exactly what their lives were supposed to be. We saw that in Exodus 9, 19, 5, and 6. They were to be a holy nation. They were to be distinct. They were to be separate. They were to be different than every other nation. Why? Because the the objective, the purpose was for them to reflect their God. Why did God create humanity? To be representatives. To be image bearers. In everything we do, we are to be image bearers. Colossians 3.23, he says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord, thereby glorifying God in everything you do. In everything we do, from the smallest to the least. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You say those are kind of weird commandments, except that, again, it points us back to the law and the comprehensive nature. The law was that specific over what they ate, how they ate, what they drank, how, all of that. To the smallest aspect of your life, to the smallest aspect of the people of God's lives, we are to reflect the holiness of God. And the law, again, the law flowed from God, as we saw. And, and the problem was is that we fell short. And, and the law makes that obvious, as we'll see. And so people were erroneously concluding that the law was bad. That's why Paul in Romans 7, 12 says, So then, the law, listen, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The, the, the law is good. The law is holy. Why? Because it flows from a holy God. The, law's way, the law was God's way of revealing himself as holy. It showed Israel God's holiness. It showed them how they were to live before a watching world. And again, you see it on your handout. By following the law, Israel would display to the world what their God was like. That's why Leviticus eleven forty four and 25 says, You shall be holy as I am holy. That's why 1 Peter 1, says, He quotes there and he says, You shall be holy for I am holy. God demands that his people be holy. Why? Because he's holy. It's already been chosen. You can go to Deuteronomy and 7 and see the grace. God says very clearly, I didn't choose you because of anything about you. I did not look at you and see any characteristic in you that made you worthy of me choosing you. I simply chose you to display my grace in you. Period. You can go to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7 and see that very clearly. This was to be a means... Of displaying the awesomeness of our God. It was to be. It was to overflow from the fact of having been chosen. Deuteronomy chapter four, verses six through eight, make that clear. He says in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse six: "So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who hear all these statutes." You, you see how that's connected back to the garden. You know what real wisdom is? Real wisdom is subjecting your life to God. Real wisdom is living according to the Word of God. Sin is you and I choosing for ourselves what is wise. Faith is me submitting to what God says is wise. Again, connect the dots. It will be wisdom for you and understanding in the sight of all peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, listen to what they'll say. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? What was the purpose? To reflect back on God. That other people would look at God's people and say, What is the deal? Our lives, God's people's lives were, be, were to be direct connectors to the glory of God. The answer to the question was always God. The answer to the why question, God. Why do you eat that way? Why do you drink that way? Why do you love your wife that way? Why do you love your husband that way? Why do you raise your kids that way? Why do you work that way? Why do you study that way? Why do you play sports that way? Why, do you, why don't you look at this? Why do you look at God? because I'm I'm to be a reflection of my great God. That was the whole point. And if God's people looked exactly the same as all the other peoples who are worshiping false gods, there'd be no distinction. There'd be no awesomeness. And, And you see it on your handout. The law showed God's people how to rightly represent the holiness of God in every aspect of their lives. Every aspect, it was comprehensive. If you're going to be my people, this is how you're going to have to look. This is this holiness. But, but the problem is this. Not only does the law reveal, our char, be, real, re, re, excuse me, reveal the character of our great God, secondly, you see on your handout, the law is good in that it reveals our sinfulness and ability, inability to obey the demands perfectly on our own. The rest of the the Pentateuch, really the rest of the Bible, and we'll look at it next week through the prophets specifically, and I'm building this story to Bethlehem. The rest of the Pentateuch, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, continue this story of God and his relationship with his chosen people. And here's what you see. God continues to reveal himself to be holy. He continues to reveal laws. He continues to show his nature to his people. And his people continually fall short. His people sin. They're on the cusp of the promised land. They send in spies. They come back. Ten ten have a bad report, two have a good report. Who do they believe? They believe the bad report. God has told them this is your land. Again, will you believe me? Will you live by faith and not by sight? Will you live by my wisdom or your wisdom? They say, we're not going in there. The people are too big. We're like grasshoppers. They'll kill us. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. God destroys an entire generation. They come back to the same spot. God has not changed. What does Moses do? He gives them the same law again. That's Deuteronomy. Nothing's changed. If you're going to be my people, here it is. Same law, new generation, same law, same failures. The rest of the Bible is that cycle of man's sinfulness. And what the law exposed was our sinfulness. And again, this didn't didn't catch God by surprise. It's, It's interesting, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses You know, he strikes a rock instead of speaking to the rock. And God says, listen, because of that, you can't lead my people into the promised land. And Moses' last speech to the people. Listen to what he says. The Lord said to Moses, behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. And this people will arise and play the harlot with strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. You go to verse 27, For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord, how much more then after my death. Verse 29, For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn away from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the later days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the works of your hands. Israel's rebellion did not surprise God, and yet he was faithful. And you see on your handout, that was sort of the point. In many ways, not only did it reveal God, it revealed our sinfulness. In some ways, this was the intent of the law, not only to reveal God's holiness, but to expose Israel's sinfulness. What the law did was expose God's character and exposed ours at the same time. And it showed there was a gap that we did not measure up. That's what Paul is speaking to in Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What what Paul is saying, the law is good, but what it did was expose our sinfulness the law showed us to be utterly guilty of sin, that we utterly fall short. And and it's interesting here, of all the sins that Paul could have mentioned, of all the sin that the law exposed, why coveting? I mean, of of all the sins that he could have mentioned, why coveting? And I think the point is this. Most of the sins that you and I commit are outside of us. Meaning this, others can see them. Stealing, lying, adultery, whatever. You can see them. Here's the challenge. A person can be covetous and people around them not really know it. Sure, sure, it, is, sure it reveals itself in certain ways, but, but it's, it's less obvious than the obvious sins. Agreed? It's in your heart. Coveting sits right here. And and, and again, I think Paul's point is to reveal our utter depravity that sin goes way beyond mere external actions. That to the heart of us, we're sinful. And ultimately, you see it on your handout, our problem is is a problem of the heart. Jesus addressed this in Matthew 5 with adultery and murder. And how it goes way beyond simply the externals of the law. There is, what he is saying is this there is none righteous before the Lord. Nothing is hidden. The law exposed everything about our lives as being utterly sinful. That that sin goes so much deeper than just mere actions, it's attitudes, it's desires. It's Sometimes sin is a lack of action where you should act. That's, where, that's why John read Romans 3, there are none righteous, no, not even one. He goes on to say there are none who do good. There are none who seeks God. None. Not a hint of self-righteousness there. And again, in the law we see a reflection of God's glory, but we see a reflection of our sin. And John Stott, John Stott said this, The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace. Here's what the law does, if you treat it rightly. It causes you to look for somebody else. It causes you to look for somebody outside of you to obey it for you. It causes you to look for, a, for an intercessor. It causes you to look for a redeemer. It causes you to look for a savior. Charles Spurgeon said, again, someone who comes to the law and thinks that by the law they're going to be declared righteous or proven to be sinless, Spurgeon responded and said, that person is likened to a person who thinks they are basically good. And a person who thinks they are rich, but won't look at their bank accounts. This person lives in style, and when they get into a bad financial situation, they simply take out another loan, and another, and another, convincing themselves that they are okay, all the while not acknowledging their real condition. We can fool ourselves into thinking we are basically good people, that we are okay. But the law says otherwise. Listen, no matter how many laws God gave, whether it was one in the garden, whether it was ten, whether it was 613, what did man do? They broke them. Man fell short. And you see on your handout, through the law, we become very aware of our need for a substitute to fulfill and obey the law on our behalf. That's the right use of the law. We need somebody to act on our behalf. We need somebody to fulfill the law on our behalf. We need a substitute. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, through 8-11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, For the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The problem is with the misuse of the law, not with the law. The problem is with us thinking that we're good Outside of that, like we're good in and of ourselves, that's the improper use of the law. God is communicating to us our need for a substitute. He's communicating His holiness. He's communicating our sinfulness, that we fall short. And if we use the law, if we turn the law around and use it as a means to establish our righteousness before God, we're condemned. But if we use it to declare a need for a substitute and we look to Jesus Christ as that substitute, we'll be saved. See, see the law is like a mirror. The law, the law is like an, like an x-ray machine. You look in a, what does a mirror do? A mirror, you look in a mirror and a mirror simply reveals that you've got dirt on your face. But it doesn't do anything to wash away the dirt. You know what an x-ray machine does? An x-ray machine looks inside your skin, underneath your skin, to what you can't see. An x-ray machine says, when I was in high school, I I was fooling around and jumped out of some bleachers and fell and broke both bones in my forearm, two plates, 13 screws. You know what the x-ray machine told me? Your your arm's broken. I knew that because my arm right here literally was hanging. But you know, what the, you know what the x-ray machine does? It pinpoints for the doctors exactly where the brake is. But you know what the x-ray machine doesn't do? It doesn't fix the break. It exposes the brake. It exposes the issue. The x-ray machine doesn't fix the issue. The law exposed our issue. Sin but the law couldn't fix the issue. Listen to me. I say all that to bring you to Bethlehem. Enter Christ. Enter a baby in a manger. Not for a good people. Not for a righteous people for a sinful people Again, 1st 1 Timothy 1:15, 1 Paul says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That baby in a manger, Jesus. It's God's solution to his creation rebelling Living according to their own wisdom, idolizing other things, pursuing other things, falling short of the law. God answered, God solved the dilemma by doing this. I, my son, will take on flesh, perfect God, fully God, fully humanity. He will take on flesh. And He will do for my people what they cannot, my creation rather, He will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And the third point there on your handout is just that. The law of God is good. Not only does it reveal God's character, not only does it reveal our sinfulness, it reveals our need for a Savior who would fulfill the law, who would fulfill its demands on our behalf and make a way for us to be restored. Restored fellowship. See, see Christ this way. Listen to Romans eight two. Well, starting verse one, great passage. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where the law condemned, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the law no longer has the power to condemn you. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf. All the fu- it's fulfilled. The the law no longer condemns you if you have your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of that baby in a manger. I mean, one millisecond before you placed your faith in Christ, God had every right to condemn you because of your sin, and yet in Christ there is no condemnation. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, listen, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in those who do, who walk, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of God. Amen? Do you see the beauty and the fullness of, what, of this baby in a manger? God God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Galatians 3, 13 and, and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Through faith in Christ, we are grafted into the people of God Abraham's people. Father Abraham had, did have many sons. I am one of them, and so are you, by faith. By faith. God never intended for the law to bring eternal life, to forgive sins. Its role was to, to drive us to look for another. Listen to Galatians 3, 24. Therefore... The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The word tutor there is is pedagogos. Literally on that day, parents would entrust their children to another individual when they were a child and that person would raise that child and train that child so that when that child came of age, that child would be able to take over the father's business. They would literally be a guardi- guardian of that child. Oftentimes, the person doing that work was a slave. Slaves were in that day, many times, were treated as family, mem- family members. Don't try to get past what we know, the atrocity that we know of slavery in America. In many regards, it was vastly different in Roman days. I'm not saying it was okay. I'm saying it was different. And these, these people would tutor the child under the, under the authority of the parent so that child would adopt the heart of the parent. That tutor didn't train him on his own. That tutor pointed the child to his parent, prepared that child to take over the family business on behalf of the parent. That was the law. Paul is showing us, you see there, that the heart of the law was instructive. It led us to Christ. It led us to look for another. We need a substitute. Bring us to the end of ourselves that we would look for a substitute. Again, God had to act on our behalf. If his creation was going to be reconciled to himself, somebody had to be our substitute. Enter Christ. Enter this baby in a manger. Please see the grace of God. What God is saying in that baby is that, listen, I know you're dirty. I know you've fallen short. The, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is not work your way to God and hope you're good enough in the end. I, I, again, I, I was sharing with you. I was talking to a, a man who is, who is a Hindu. And, and I said, listen, he shared what he believed. And I said, listen, here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells me on the front end that I don't measure up, that I fall short, that I can never measure up on my own. Enter Jesus Jesus measured up on my behalf. He fulfilled the law on my behalf through faith, through my faith in Him. His righteousness is credited to my account. His obedience is credited to my account. that's That's the great news of the gospel, that God's holy demands have been satisfied through faith in Christ. God himself taking on flesh, being born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, coming so that he would be a curse for us, dying, paying the penalty of sin that he never committed. That's the gift of Christmas. Restored fellowship, you see it there on your handout, between God and his creation. Again, not through works of our own. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, Talking about faith. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Do you understand if you were able to get to God on your own, why did God crucify his son? That would be the cruelest act known to man, to crucify your son unnecessarily. If you could work your way to God, why did Jesus have to die? Through faith in Christ, you can be declared righteous. Christ's fulfillment of the law can be, can be credited to your account as if you had never sinned. Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, guess what? Grace much more abounds. There is no sin that any of us have ever committed that cannot be overcome by the grace of God. Isaiah 118, Though your sins were as scarlet, they can be washed as white as snow. Psalm 103, 12, He says, I will separate you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. Through faith in Christ not faith in Christ plus, no, it's faith in Christ. Doesn't matter what you've done. And listen, that's why Paul mentions coveting, because you know what, all of us in here have committed sins that other people in here don't know we've done. And you know what, we're going to work real hard to make sure that you don't know what we've done. But you know what, here's the deal, you're not acquitted by what I think of you. You're not guilty by what I know about you. You're guilty because of what God absolutely knows about you. And yet in Christ, in God taking on flesh to die once and for all, one sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, you can be acquitted of your sin just like that. The righteousness of God, the holiness of God can be credited to your account, just like that. You say, Well, Chris, what 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 bearing does the law have on me as a believer? Listen, we do everything we did as a slave, except now we do it as a son. Do we seek to obey the law? Absolutely. But we do it as sons and daughters. We do it out of delight. We do it as an overflow of of the understanding of what God has done in salvation, not as a duty to earn our salvation. You see it on your handout. It's a gratitude. We obey out of gratitude, not a coercion. I I hope you see that. We obey, but we obey as sons. My my point is, is grace. I was having a conversation with the other... The other day with a guy who, who kept going back to the law. He, his tendency is to go back to the law, go back to the law, go back to the law. And, and that's where he finds his, his righteousness, if you will. And, and, and he just goes to the letter of the law. And I said, listen, understand. And, and he just didn't understand grace properly. And I, and I tried to help him. And I said, listen, grace, grace allows me to go beyond the law. You know, the law says go one mile. What did Jesus say? Go two. The grace says, give this, and Jesus says, no, no, give them that and your tunic. Grace allows me to go beyond the law, but here's the beauty of grace. Grace also forgives me when I fall short of the law. Grace. Grace. Do we seek to obey the law? Absolutely. Do we seek to obey the word? Absolutely. But we do it as sons and daughters. And when we fall short, here's the beauty. Christ is our redemption, not me measuring up on my own. That's why 1 John 2 1 says Jesus Christ is our advocate. Satan stands daily, if you will, accusing the brethren. You know what Jesus Christ says? I died for that sin. Their sin is, they, they have faith in me. Their sin is not theirs. I, took, I paid for that. It's done. Timothy Keller says this, and see it on your hand, you'll see it on your handout, and I'll try to get out of here real quick. Without the gospel, we may obey the law, but we will learn to hate it. We will use it, but we will not truly love it. Only as we obey the law because we are saved rather than to be saved will we do so for God, as Galatians 2.19 says. Once we understand salvation by promise, we do not obey God any longer for our sake by using the law salvation system to get things from God. Rather, we now obey God for His sake, using the law's content to please and delight our Father. Do you see where obedience comes in? It is to please and delight our Father. See See this. As the true gift of Christmas. Listen. Jesus claimed what Buddha and Muhammad and every other false god. What they refused to claim. Jesus claimed to be fully God. This is not a matter of opinion. This is not a matter of sincerity. It's not a matter of just just all of us getting along. Here's the problem. It's a matter of truth. Either that baby in the manger is who he says he was, or he's a liar. It's truth. It's not a matter of opinion. The the most important question that you can ask yourselves this Christmas is this. Who is that baby in the manger? And Jesus claimed to be Lord. Even to the point where he says to to his followers, again, you say, Where does obedience come in? As a response, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? That's the question I ask us today as we approach Christmas. Who's that baby in the manger? See, nobody's offended by a baby, nobody's startled by a baby. Everybody's attracted to a baby. You bring a newborn baby. Lindsay Anderson was at our house last night with some others and she walked in with her baby and the rest of us could have walked away. Every woman in there. But that baby grew up and claimed to be God in the flesh. Claimed that he was the way, the truth and the life and no one could come to the Father. No one could be forgiven of their sin apart from faith in Him. That baby grew up, died on a cross, three days later was resurrected exactly as He said He would do. Is that who you say that Jesus is? God's communicating. Look to Jesus. Truly grasp this Jesus this Christmas. Truly grasp who we are in Christ. Truly grasp the role that obedience has in our walk. That we would glorify our Father. And and I would beg, if there's anyone here today who is not certain of who this Jesus is, not certain that their sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus alone, let's talk afterwards. Let's talk. It's by grace you are saved through faith of not of works. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven.